Alright, let's record this year. Okay, okay. We're gonna um dive right into the into the Pasha we just read. Pasha Truma on Shabbos introduces us to um each year we come to this particular point in the Torah where the historical story and the narrative uh, pauses and uh, a full detailed discussion of the concept of building a mishkan you know comes into comes into play so um one of the most uh, uh, famous discussions on the nature of uh, of the mishkan is um you know would it have been necessary if it wasn't for the the the, the golden calf episode or not would we have needed a mishkan in the desert um at all and this is a big debate among uh, among the the commentaries um and i'm not going to get into this particular aspect of it but rather uh, i saw a um, a fascinating insight um by rabbi jonathan Sachs on uh, on the nature of mishkan in general and uh, i think it was uh, very very apt you know to uh, to us to our situation today um and so for the next 5 weeks we've got uh detailed discussion of the actual concept of building the Mishkan. And, um, and we need to ask ourselves, you know, what, what, the, what do we extract? Well, what lesson do we learn from the fact that right on the heels of uh, receiving the Torah, Hashem revealing himself, the Ten Commandments, um, as that finishes, uh, the last we hear is Moshe Rabbeinu ascending the mountain to uh, spend 40 days and 40 nights there receiving uh, the rest of Torah. And as Moshe Rabbeinu goes up the mountain, straight away, without pause, the Torah jumps into this discussion of, uh, of building a Mishkan. And uh, the question that's, uh, that's leveled at us is essentially uh, asking what really is the importance of this Mishkan. Let's assume the Mishkan was going to be built regardless of whether there was a, uh, you know, a golden calf or not. Um, it was just going to be built. And... Um, and that, and that, uh, and 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 that didn't it didn't make a difference whether there was some sort of uh, issue of uh, repentance or you know uh, an atonement. It was it was a principle like the Ramban thinks in and of itself. It is a it's a great principle. Uh, we speak about it in the Az Yashir Mikdash Hashem Konu Yadecha. We talk about this idea of a Mikdash, but it's juxtaposition right in the middle of Sefer Shmot. This is what we we're looking to understand. In other words, if you wanted to write a, a, a description of what the book of Exodus is all about, um, you, would, uh, you would classically say, look, it's the shaping of a nation, the crystallizing of the people coming together, leaving physical slavery, leaving spiritual slavery, and between Yitzhak Mitzrayim and Matan Torah, they, uh, they need, they, they've achieved what the book is really setting out to teach us about. Now, all of a sudden, halfway through the Sefer, we've got this uh, massive, um, you know, fixation and zooming in to the actual details of, uh, of the Mishkan itself. This, this idea of this spiritual home called Mishkan, with all its attendant laws, would have been um, so much more aptly uh, written and described in the Sefer Vayikra, because that's where the entire um, set of laws pertaining to the concept of sanctity, um, the nature of all the sacrifices, the days upon which you would have your yontas and your sacrifices, all the all the all the laws to do with the kohanim, 
everything is all in favor of Ayikra. And so therefore one could think, you know, the description of the Mishkan would have really fit well into, uh, into Sefer Vayikra. And so uh, the, the book of Shmot can be defined as, you know, the birth of the nation. And that's the topic. And that should have just been enough for that particular Sefer. Now you come to the, you know, you come to Sefer Vayikra, you know, now it makes sense to start a discussion about, uh, you know, about, about, about Mishkan. So the question, this is really the question that um, uh, we, we're going we're gonna to look at. Now, what uh, the, the lovely insight that, I, that Rabbi Sachs has shared with us um, in, one of his, in one of his essays is, um, is, this, is this point. And he says, if you have a look at the story until um, the Mishkan point, what you see is, is that Hashem does uh, or displays every, every type of miracle to keep the entire people going. So from the plagues in Egypt, all the way through the splitting of the Yamsuf and the survival of the Jewish people and the wiping out of the Egyptian army. Um, then all of a sudden, you know, the, the ability to support them in the desert with, uh, try, with dealing with the water supply and food and defending against Amalek. There were, there were a lot of miracles that Hashem displayed and wrought for, for Am Yisrael. And yet the interesting thing is, is that when you reflect back, what you see is that the, the miracles, uh, one would have expected them to have a tremendously big impact upon the people and their spiritual level, the connection to Hashem. But really what happens is, is that some, for some strange reason, it's counterintuitive, but Hashem's miracles hardly have a permanent impact, um, at least when you're following the text of the Torah, they hardly have a permanent impact on the Jewish people because the complaints and the lack of commitment to the belief in Hashem, you know, come forth all the time. And, you know, although we don't want to judge what it's like to be, to, you know, have a whole people feeling so vulnerable in, the, in a desert, but at the end of the day, miracle upon miracle upon miracle should have given you some pause to say, okay, we, you know, we're in Hashem's hands and, uh, and, and we should, we should um, perceive it that way. But yet somehow, with all the miracles that took place, um, it didn't, it, it did not, uh, it did not, I guess, uh, cause Am Israel to develop the level of faith that, uh, that could have been expected from them. And so the question is, you know, what do, what do you do? What does Hashem do? When you know, day after day, this, there's just these miracles that are happening all the time, and um, you know, you culminate in the in the greatest, you know, the finest hour of Jewish history, where Hashem Himself reveals Himself to Am Yisrael, and uh, and then you know, you, you you'd expect something more, and and so what does Hashem really need to do? What what you know what 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 could what could be more impactful than a whole set of miracles? like that and so what uh you know what what hashem tries to teach us uh you know is as follows and that is that we we make a major error when we think about the impact of miracles we think that the more miracles hashem does for us you know all he has to do is one miracle for us and we'll we'll become committed but what you start to see is uh is exactly the opposite or you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work, this equation. Um, the real remarkable lesson is, is that 
Hashem says to the people, you know what's going to actually uh, elevate your status and start your thinking and, 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 and create the motivation that's needed to live a committed Jewish life? It's actually not miracles. Miracles are not going to do the trick. And he has the proof. You see, it's not really working. Um, what actually is going to work, what actually is really going to work is something as follows. And that is that the people have to feel that they're involved in a project, uh, a project that's a national project where everybody, you know, puts in and invests their, either their capital, their time, their energies, their skills. But if you build something together and you create something, um, then ironically, it will impact your personality, which means as follows. And that is that Hashem is saying, build something together, you know, for me, and that will transform you. And so this is the great line that Rabbi Sachs has. You know, he says that it's not what Hashem does for us that transforms us. It's what we do for Hashem that transforms us. So we can sit around waiting for people to, you know, to, to get handout upon handout upon handout, you know, from Hakosh Baruch Hu and thinking that, you know, the more handouts we get, somehow that will make people more committed, appreciate things. It's, it's, it's interesting how ironically opposite it is. It's not what Hashem does for us. You can wait for as many handouts as, as you want, but in the end of the day, that won't have nearly as much qualitative impact you know, on your, on your persona as a person investing their own efforts in doing something for Hashem. And so the shift over here comes by Hashem saying to Am Yisrael, until now, until, uh, until the Sinai experience, including the Sinai experience, you know, you were basically passive recipients, you know, to my, uh, to my, to my goodness. And, uh, you know, we tried this road thinking that maybe you will respond uh, properly. What, what, what comes out is, is that following the line of thinking that the, there was a whole debacle of the golden calf, but even without that, the fact that there was such a, there, there was such a low point in terms of people's faith that they even contemplated going back to Mitzrayim, Hashem is basically teaching Amishol a lesson straight after the revelation at Sinai. Um, we have to teach the people that in order for the Torah to stick, you need to actually come together in a project where you become partners with Hashem in the work of creation that you help Hashem's going to help you and you're going to, you're going to create yourselves. And um, this is possibly what the Pasuk refers to when uh, we say it all the time at the end of Enkelokainu, uh, you know, we talk about the play on words where the, the Pasuk says, you know, Altikra um, Banaich, don't read the word Banaich, my sons or my children, in the verse that's quoted, Ela Bonaich, but my builders. In other words, if you really want to understand how to become connected to Hashem on a level like a, a child is to a parent, one, uh, one needs to invest in that relationship one, one, oneself. And therefore, what Yiddishkeit is asking Am Yisrael to do is to heed a call to responsibility and not to rely on miracles because Hashem actually, you know, doesn't want a level of dependence to the point where you don't do anything. 
of course, we always have to realize we're dependent on Hashem, but it's a type of dependence that we depend on Hashem for our purpose. And, uh, and, 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 and that's a greater level of dependence where, where we work together for Hashem on, on, on building a purpose or having some sort of goal. And that, and that is so transformational to a person's uh, uh, spiritual, spiritual being. And so uh, we, we start to see this in our own uh, in our society and day in Asia. And that is that um, it's, it's hard to get society after COVID and this whole, the so-called financial benefits package that everybody's received. It's so hard to get the workforce back to its optimum level. Um, and yet, if, if, if we continue this, where there will be, uh, you know, the concept of handouts, you know, obviously people need, it's fantastic and privileged to get some relief, but you see what it does. People get used to it and then ex and expect and aren't as forthcoming with their own investment in, uh, in building society uh, as such. And Hashem, you know, putting this whole discussion of Mishkan right after the, the episodes of all the miracles from the beginning of the book of Exodus until the revelation at Sinai is teaching us this uh, unbelievable counterintuitive uh, um, lesson, you know, that uh, what really transforms us is what we do for Hashem, not what Hashem, you know, you know does for us. And this is the, I thought, uh, an amazingly insightful idea, which uh, it becomes very, very relevant, you know, to the way we... Uh, we look at ourselves in society today. Uh, interesting is that Rabbi Sachs in this essay uh, moves to sharpen this point um, by getting us to, to, to focus a little on, um, on, on political theory uh, and, uh, and, and, and the philosophical ideas behind uh, building a, uh, a uniquely free society. And he does this by... Uh, taking us back in history and allowing some of the observations that were made by great thinkers, you know, in the 19th century um, um, as to how they saw the, the, the success of the new world in America, you know, crystallizing there. And um, one of the major thinkers that, um, that he, uh, he refers us to is, uh, is, is a fellow by the name of Alexei de Tocqueville, and uh, you know he's a thinker that I, I'm not familiar with, to be honest. Um, and he was visiting America in the early in the early 19th century, the 1830s, and um, he was looking to try and you know summarize, define the nature of whether America was going to become a success or not. How does one deal with um, you know this concept of democracy as America is uh, is expressing it? And um, the phrase that he used to describe what he saw there was he was very impressed by what was happening in America. And uh, he, he called the success, the recipe for success was the, the art of association. Uh, and, and this was the, the tendency of Americans to come together in community and uh, voluntary groups to help one another rather than leaving the task to a, a centralized government. Uh, and this is what he saw, interestingly, in America, this, this interesting approach where a free society has to deal with, you know, the, 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 rules of, uh, the rules of government. And the big distinction that one has to make within 
this this uh, this 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 understanding of politics is the difference between state and society. So Rabbi Sachs teaches that that the state represents you know government doing for the people, whatever this. Whatever this body that rules the country, elected to power, yes, but it's the expectation by the people when you're living in a state is for the state, you know, to do for you. Um, and, and whatever, whatever the, the state represents, uh, the machinery of government, you know, which, which basically invests in its, in its people. That's state. Whereas society is what we do for one another through communities and the voluntary associations, the charities, the welfare organizations, all of, all of that, you know, where the humanities reach their zenith. This is, this is the nature of society coming into its own. So you just, you just need to distinguish between these two components that may up, make up the equation of a democratic uh, society. And society will define itself by which of these two variables um, you know, it adopts as, uh, as its main focus. And so it's interesting, there could be a shift in history where you start off, and this is exactly what I think has really happened here, and that is that in the early days, we want to know why America was so much more successful, uh, if we can make such a statement, at least in terms of the nature of its people, the quality of its people, the ideas that drove it is because, you know, you know, America in its in its formative years was uh, was much more. In, it, it, it emphasized so much more the commitment to society than it did to 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 the concept of, of state. And so, uh, and this th this is probably the real challenge. Yiddishkeit works like that as well, and that is that ideally we we totally want to be focused on society. You know more what we do for ourselves you know in the presence and you know of Hashem according to those values then um then waiting for the government to succeed and become just beneficiaries of what the you know what the what the government is is doing and so um th th this is an amazing insightful comment by this thinker you know Tocqueville who, who writes this idea um you know, 200 years ago, where he's warning uh, as to the difference between America and Europe. He says, Europe, you know, Europe has become, or European societies have become all state, all government, and no, no community. Now, he's not a religious fellow, this guy, but, you know, he's, uh, you know, but he's talking philosophically, um, but it really resonates with our, uh, with our theory over here. Um, you know, when you have a central power, even if that power is Akosh Baruch himself, is God himself, if, if that power does everything on behalf of the people, you know, they remain in a state of, um, you know, immature development. And, and what it results in is so much complaining, more than it is investment or acting on, you know, by the people themselves. And this gives way to unrealistic expectations, uh, depression, um, and, and, and it's, society starts to unravel because of this approach, uh, this approach to life. Um, people complain instead of acting. 
And it's so much easier to give in to this because you're expecting everything to come, you know, from your government. You elected them based on their promises to deliver. And in the end of the day, um, you know, what, what that famous quote from, from Kennedy was all about, you know, uh, don't ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That is really an expression of, I guess, America's uh, motivation, you know, in the, in the decades that, that, uh, that preceded us, you know, and now you see that that kind of approach has completely dissipated from the society. And so one has to work out how to balance this and to motivate transformation in society. You have to find a way of, of, of getting, of getting people to realize that the solution of motivation to become better, you know, lies in transforming people and making them, you know, co-architects of their own destiny. And you've got to get people to buy into a project, to build something together, to create a, uh, a team mentality. And this, this team mentality would, uh, would produce so much more and have, you know, counterintuitively, so much more impact on the people invest, investing their time and their money. That's where the transformation, you know, is, is, is to come. And so, you know, going back to our original question, what can we, what can we appreciate in the way that the, the Torah describes this detailed um, coming together of the people via the commandment of Hashem through Moshe to build this portable uh, temple, this portable mikdash, this mishkan in the desert? Uh, why did it come now? Why is it so important to be part of the the story of the Exodus, it's because it's to try and show you that the miracles which form the first half of the book, you know, did not achieve what they were meant to achieve. Yes, in terms of the story, they were probably desperately needed in order to liberate Amisha from Mitzrayim. But it's so interesting that it didn't achieve what it was meant to achieve other than that. It didn't give us, it didn't give us the motivation you know, to self-transform, uh, you know, to take responsibility for our own development. And we weren't able to see that uh, investing in uh, a committed way of life on that level uh, would, have, um, would have brought benefit to all of society and made us better servants of Hashem. And so what Hashem now tries to teach us with this idea of Mishkan is understand that what Hashem has done for you has been unbelievable, but it's also turned you into passive recipients, and that isn't good for society, and it's not good for Yiddishkeit. What we need to do is to create a project, you know, where everybody can collaborate and 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 come to be part of this kind of you know collective investment, which uh, is not just going to create something and transform what you create, but it's going to transform what you are and how you think about, about the world. And so the entire creation of the world, interestingly enough, uh, really has the subtle message woven into the story. You know, when Hashem creates the universe, uh, the Torah tells us that Hashem says, Na se adam let us make man. And this gives all the commentaries an opportunity uh, to demonstrate philosophical insights by uh, analyzing what it meant that Hashem said, 
to human beings, Naaseh, let us make man. And there were those who thought that Hashem was talking to uh, the concepts of physical matter and the equations of and laws of nature that had been created by Hashem in the first stage of creation. You know, all those, all those, uh, you know, that entity or the, the angels, the spiritual beings, um, together, the spiritual beings plus the, the concept of, 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 of physicality, we, we will all come together to contribute to the ability for mankind to survive and thrive. Let us make, uh, let us make man. Um, Rav Soloveitchik was fond of, of, uh, of developing a different approach, and that is Hashem was talking to mankind to man and woman. And Hashem was saying to all of us, let you and I both partner in your creation. Now say Adam, let us, you and me, partner in, in uh, the creation of you. That's now say. Hashem already is trying to communicate that this is such a vital approach. And, and therefore creation ends off with the, the celebration of the creation of man. And as we you know, going to celebrate and commemorate Shabbos, you know, we we toast to this idea by saying, by Hashem completed all of creation. And then we say what we are celebrating or commemorating or observing is uh, the concept that because Hashem created this whole enterprise, La'asot. Now, La'asot is not a uh, it's not a grammatically correct way to end off the sentence because la'asot is, you know, to do, you know. Uh, we should have ended off by saying, which Hashem created, full stop. What's this la'asot? Well, yeah, la'asot is uh, emphasizing this concept that really creation has finished, but it really hasn't. It's finished to a certain point, but the rest is now up to you. La'asot for you, human beings, to shape your own destiny. That's real kiddush. When you make kiddush, it's a recognition of the fact that, yes, Hashem created everything, is the master of everything, and created us as human beings. But it doesn't stop there. We would then just be recipients. But rather, all of this is only going to work if la'asot, if we partner in Hashem in, uh, in creating our own destinies. Hashem is inviting all of mankind to become co-creators uh, of our own of our own lives. And this is really the really, um, you know, beautiful insight that, uh, that I think explains um, so, so well uh, what we understand from the juxtaposition of the topic of Mishkan stapled to uh, the whole set of miracles that, that preceded us. Now, what this, what this leads us to contemplate is where, where, where we are standing uh, as a community, a Jewish community, and I, and I don't believe it's only in Sydney, but it's probably, you know, a worldwide phenomenon. And that is, you know, all communities are struggling to get people back into the driver's seat of shul, of Yiddishkeit. And that everything that was sort of uh, part and parcel of our behavior before, with all the attend, all the different functions and and coming together for shiurim and and celebrations and and and, and davening, probably attendance at shul is the biggest casualty probably as a result of this COVID where, you know, we look, we can't blame everybody to a point, but 
yes, we, we learned how you don't really need a shul. I mean, if you went to start fundraising to build a, a new shul today, man, can you imagine what the response would be? No, you don't need a shul. We saw, we saw for the last two years, 90% of our Yiddish card has been, you know, on Zoom and, and at home. Even for those of us who are keeping Shabbos, you know, we just, we, we're either too vulnerable and feel too scared or threatened. You know, and I'm not going to say that the people are wrong, but this is what's happened. For, even for those who are not feeling vulnerable, you know, the option of staying at home, you know, isn't, isn't embarrassing anymore. It became, it became an option. And uh, it's now not just seen as, well, desperate times call for desperate measures and we allow you, we can still function at home and we realize it's not ideal. But now it's become optional and, and, uh, and this is a, a major, it's a, it's a major blow to the concept of community, communal involvement, uh, togetherness in the world of building community of shul, davening at shul, coming together for shirim. We just have to, and, and we're in trouble. The more this becomes um, a, a way of life, the more we start to think that, uh, that this is the way it should be. And what we don't realize is that just the mere fact that you get up and go somewhere, you know, says so much more and does so much more for our, you know, inner persona than just sitting at home and functioning from a, uh, you know, a laptop. It's just not the, it's just not going to do it for us. Whatever we do, there's some, there's a, an unbelievable dimension, which is going to be missing. And so, yeah, we hope this thing ends quickly and, uh, Somehow we are all able to move towards, um, you know, building again, as opposed to just being beneficiaries. And this is the big musar, you know, this is the big uh, ethical point of rebuke that 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 people need to hear because the shul and the attendance at shul and the minyanim, they are they shrinking to to uh, an all time low, and uh, we're not appreciating the negative impact that that has. Yes, you think you're davening at shul, and some people will say, oh, you know, I like the quiet at my own pace. I can do it when I want, whatever time I want. But the fact that you aren't actually physically doing something and going there uh, takes away from an investment that you were making uh, in the in environment of shul until now. And what, whatever activity, uh, an active investment a person was making and now is no longer doing, you know, this lesson is teaching you that you're not realizing how much you are losing out, how much you you're not you're not growing as a result of uh, of the isolationist policies, the sitting back and letting it happen on a much less active level. And I think this is a major major uh, you know point to to get across, you know, to um, to to all of us. I mean, we're all in the same position. Some of us. On, or not in this voluntarily, you know, but many people, you know, are, are not expressing that vulnerability because everyone's happy to go shopping and every, everyone's happy to go to other forms of entertainment. Um, so if you're going and spending, you know, if, it's, if the vulnerability isn't really your thing, then, you know, why is it impacting on this level of religiosity, uh, you know, or, or, or involvement in, 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 uh, in, in, in learning and davening, it's uh, it's uh, the Aitora is uh, on fire here. So um, this kind of idea helps really 
you know, focus and sharpen our awareness of how um, how much good there is involved in in building, in creating a collective collaborative project like Mishkan. There's nothing like it to transform and uplift a person's connection to Hashem. And uh, it also highlights how important getting together and society is in the creation of, in the creation of these communal um, religious platforms. Because in theory, yeah, you can daven on your own, but it doesn't have the same oomph and koyach as, uh, you know, for your own growth and transformation as, uh, as coming together. So anyway, this is what we this is what we're struggling with on on so many different levels, and um, you know this even the solution within the world of of, of COVID finance relief packages, uh, you start to see that you know people all of us we all benefit and we're so privileged to have a, a country that can give it to us, but it's not it's it cannot be the way to build, it's not the way to build it's the way to survive, but once we you know realize that. This is just not the way to be. We can't create a system where people are questioning whether it's actually better not to work because the relief payouts, you know, give me the option of not doing so. It's just not good to work. Now, maybe some people need a break, but um, I've seen some fascinating uh, statistics, um, you know, entertaining ones, meaning like they, they just show how society is working. So when you start to see how many people have left the city for the country. Um, one statistic that was, was uh, you know, I, I got to read about, you know, almost by accident, if you can call it that. Um, there was a, there's a young couple, young family, who, uh, who invested in a, uh, in a, in a caravan, you know, over the holidays. And, uh, you know, this is a fantastic idea. And instead of, you know, this young couple having to, uh, work out what they're going to do on holiday and how they're going to afford accommodation. So yeah, it's a one-time investment, but you've got this ability now to be mobile and you've got your caravan that you can tow up and hitch up to your car and have a month holiday without, uh, you know, you know, for a young family going camping, it's brilliant. Anyway, so, you know, I remember myself once spending a, a month in a, in a camper van or, you know, going around Europe. It was amazing when you were younger. Anyhow, uh, they phoned me to ask all about to ask me all about the kashrut shilas that are involved in kashering out this kitchen in this camper van, right? So you you can imagine now you've got all you know you what, what do you do with the oven and the, and, and the grill and you know and and the bench tops and and everything you just got to make this this thing kosher, okay? So we were discussing all the ins and outs and what was uh, what was the best way to do it and. Without, you know, if you, if you poured boiling water all over the, you know, the, the bench tops that gets behind them, you're in a camper van. You're not just at home in a kitchen where the water would just dry out and dissipate. You know, who knows what damage you might cause. And anyway, there were all sorts of interesting uh, shilas to, to deal with. And, you know, doable and, and fantastic. Anyway, so while I'm looking up, you know, you know how these, these sort of built-in ovens are working, you know, in these camper vans. So I get online just to see that I understand exactly what is, uh, what, what, we, what we're looking at here now. And I get on to see what they look like, you know, what they look like. Anyhow, so while I'm online and I'm reading about it, so you bump into this, uh, these stories that there's, uh, there is a support group 
call it a support group for each other, where you have, I think the statistic was something like there are 12,000 single ladies, single 12,000 ladies who, for whatever reason, have broken up from their relationships uh, or saying, you know, I need a break from these relationships in my work that are that are uh, have done that this as a permanent lifestyle you know they've invested in a in a, a caravan or camper van or a you know what, what we used to call like a, a combi you know what i mean and they, they've turned it into this mobile home and uh and, and 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 off you go and they just you know now i'm not criticizing it i'm just saying that it may be good for a while but at some point in time, you know, leaving society and going out, you know, leaving that environment where there's a push and a drive to build, yes, I think there's some real benefits in there. But one has to work out at what point and what stage of life for young people, you know, to to do this. Okay, maybe the environment which the less the less um, stressful environment is healthier. But I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking that society as a whole. I don't know if that's a good new normal or this is something to watch for, but there's how many people you've got, you know, you, you can't find these things for love or money, these camper vans, because it's become such a new way of life. And I think there are amazingly healthy parts to it to get rid of stress. But, I, but, I'm, but at the same time, if one doesn't invest in, in, in society, then there, there probably is a, a, you know, a negative side to that equation uh, as well. And so I think this is one of the major challenges that um, society always has to has to rethink, you know, where can we create a society where we are coming together as a society and not as a state, as collaborative project builders, you know, rather than recipients of miracles. And I think every time, every year when we read these these sections of the Torah dealing with the Mishkan, and they uh, they're challenging to read because it's hard to find you know, solid, juicy pieces of discussion based around the technical details of what's in the, in the, in the actual Mishkan itself. Uh, really, it's hard to find inspiration. And so these kind of insights uh, really talk to us by showing that what Hashem was doing here, by giving Am Yisrael the command and the opportunity to build a Mishkan, you know, it was Hashem trying to teach us how to transform yourselves. And the message was, you know, it's not what Hashem does for us um, that transforms us, but what we do for Hashem that actually transforms us and turns us into partners in a, with Hashem in our own in our own creation. Okay, so that's the idea that I wanted to share with you, and uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, coming across it. So uh, I'm sure it's uh, hopefully we dive in for its relevance to to be expressed. Uh, in concrete steps that uh, we can rebuild and come together and, uh, you know, make, make sure as far as I'm concerned, you know, a, uh, a, a Mishkan project, a Mishkan type project of, of rebuilding and reinvesting in ourselves as well. Okay. So I'll leave you there and wish you a Shavuot. Tov. Thank nice you. To see you all again. Thank you, Rabbi. Uh, Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this. Thank you, Rabbi. Okay. Thanks, Rabbi. So good to hear some good information again. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Thank you. All the best to you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, everyone.
Bye. Bye. Bye.